Well, um, church, we have been throughout Eastertide studying a, uh, a book that hardly seems like an Easter book. We've been studying the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, um, this, uh, this has been a, a challenging study. It's put us sort of on the edge. It, uh, as I've been studying Ecclesiastes, I've been walking around noticing how everyone I see, every movie I watch, every person I see interacting and observing is sort of living the life of Ecclesiastes. Uh, this, this desperate search, this clinging for something that is meaningful. And, uh, and yet, what many people miss when they study the book of Ecclesiastes is that woven throughout this almost hopeless despair is a recognition that through God we find meaning. Today we are uh, looking at various scriptures from Ecclesiastes 6, 7, and 8 for a reading at the beginning. I'm going to read chapter 6 and then a bit of chapter 8 and then we'll bop around a bit during the sermon. So now here a reading from Ecclesiastes 6, 7, and 8. Here is another misfortune that I have seen on earth, and it weighs heavily on people. God gives a man riches, property, and wealth so that he lacks nothing that his heart desires. Yet God does not enable him to enjoy the fruit of his labor. Instead, someone else enjoys it. This is fruitless and a grave misfortune. Even if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, even if he lives a long, long time but cannot enjoy his prosperity, even if he were to live forever, I would say a stillborn child is better off than he is. Though the stillborn child came into the world for no reason and departed into darkness, though its name is shrouded in darkness, though it never saw the light of day nor knew anything, yet it has more rest than that man if he should live a thousand years twice, yet does not enjoy his prosperity, for both of them die. All man's labor is for nothing more than to fill his stomach, yet his appetite is never satisfied. So what advantage does a wise man have over a fool? And what advantage does a pauper gain by knowing how to survive? It is better to be content with what the eyes can see than for one's heart always to crave more. This continual longing is futile, like chasing the wind. Whatever has happened was foreordained. And what happens to a person was also foreknown. It is useless for him to argue with God about his fate because God is more powerful than he is. The more one argues with words, the less he accomplishes. How does that benefit him? For no one knows what is best for a person during his life, during the few days of his fleeting life, for they pass away like a shadow. No one, nor can anyone tell him what the future will hold for him on earth. And now in chapter 8, not only that, but I have seen the wicked approaching and entering the temple. And as they left the holy temple, they boasted in the city that they had done so. This is also an enigma. When a sentence is not executed at once against a crime, the human heart is encouraged to do evil. Even though a sinner might commit a hundred crimes and still live a long time, yet I know that it will go well with God-fearing people, for they stand in fear before him. But... 
It will not go well with the wicked, nor will they prolong their days like a shadow because they do not stand in fear before God. Here is another enigma that occurs on earth. Sometimes there are righteous people who get what the wicked deserve. Sometimes there are wicked people who get what the righteous deserve. I said, this also is an enigma. So I recommend the enjoyment of life. For there is nothing better on earth for a person to do except to eat, drink, and enjoy life. So joy will accompany him in his toil during the days of his life that God gives him on earth. When I tried to gain wisdom and to observe the activity on earth, even though it prevents anyone from sleeping day or night, then I discerned all that God has done. No one really comprehends what happens on earth. Despite all human efforts to discover it, no one can ever grasp it. Even if a wise person claimed that he understood, he would not really comprehend it. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, would you speak to us about your word? Lord, like every Sunday for the last few weeks, we we hear the scripture, and if we're paying attention in this moment of silence, uh, I think we feel the weight of it. I think we feel the, uh, the temptation to despair, wondering, gosh, even scripture itself is saying we can't understand, we can't control anything. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to hear. And yet, Lord, in this moment, we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see what you're saying to us, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, our passage opens with a a poem that I would entitle, uh, you know, the Ode to a Stillborn Child. You know, it's got a... It's a, this depressing idea, this picture of somebody who has been incredibly successful. Uh, they've, they've worked hard and it has worked out for them, and yet they have not truly been able to enjoy what they have earned. And, and the teacher says their life was worthless. In fact, it was worse than worthless. It was, it was worse than if they had you know, not taken a single breath upon their birth. This poem invites us to ask the question, what makes life worth living? In fact, that's what Ecclesiastes is asking. What makes life worth living? And and as we consider it, we've been asking, what is it truly that allows us to to fully enter into the kingdom of God and live in that joy and purpose that Jesus offers us? and leave behind these other things that actually steal our joy and purpose. What makes life worth living? The teacher, who's either Solomon or, you know, writing in the voice of Solomon, he's tasted unlimited pleasure and success, according to him. 
He's observed all sorts of people who thrive and struggle with no apparent correlation to whether they were righteous or wicked. You know, they have, that's, that was the end of our passage, right? Yeah, I've seen the righteous get what the wicked deserve, and he's seen all of that. He's, he has uh, uh, observed his life and others' lives, and he effectively concludes that it is useless to try to understand. So let's close in prayer. <laughs> and it's even less worthwhile to try to control it. At one point in a section I, I didn't read, he, his advice to us bottoms out with this. So I decided to tell you this. Don't try to be excessively wise. Don't try to be excessively righteous. Don't waste your time on that. I, I, I think he's speaking out of his frustration in that moment. So here's the problem he's facing. Life feels chaotic and random. In fact, chaos is one of the big shadows that's cast over the book of Ecclesiastes and spending your whole life in miserable toil without ever pausing to enjoy it is worse than not living at all. Trying to understand it is impossible. So what makes life worth living if that's true? So today I want to just highlight two things that he describes as making life not worth living and then hit on the third that he suggests, peppered throughout this passage, gives purpose and joy to life. The two things that he describes as worthless efforts are controlling outcomes and ignoring outcomes. Controlling outcomes and ignoring outcomes. Chapter 6, verse 7 is a great example of the fruitlessness of trying to control outcomes. He says, all of a man's labor is for nothing more than to fill his stomach, yet his appetite is never satisfied. You see, he's working and working and working, and it works. He gets what he needs, and yet it passes through his body. He's hungry again. Friends, here in South Denver, a suburban area in 2023 in the United States, we are well familiar with the fact that privilege, education, success, and wealth give many of us, not all of us, I know, but many of us the illusion that we can make things happen for ourselves. That's the illusion we live with. If I work hard enough, it's going to work out. I can have everything I possibly need. And yet, what that ends up doing is it puts us on the hamster wheel where we work and work and work and work thinking that I'm going to at some point achieve satisfaction. And the picture that he gives to us is that's worse than being a stillborn baby. As I considered this passage, I was thinking of a good friend of mine who's actually, you know, growing up in this area, knowing lots of productive, capable uh, uh, successful people, it actually made me think of lots of friends of mine, and lots of you, as a matter of fact, but there's one person who came to mind, um, lives in another state, one of the most competent people I know, he's the type of guy who finds himself in leadership positions wherever he goes, because he shows up, he's got the right answer, he knows the thing to do, and he can just get after it. He's an Enneagram type one, if you guys know that language if you don't forget it. Um, everyone around him constantly 
you know, just depends on him. It doesn't matter how sort of effective they were before he showed up. They realize things go better when he's kind of doing it. And so, you know, he gets on a team. He, you know, he, he, he gets hired to, to a company and all of his coworkers. They end up basically stopping, to do, stopping their jobs and waiting for everything to go through him. And it's very frustrating for him. It's very difficult for him. Um, he's sort of constantly frustrated with other people. He's constantly aware of how he's disappointing people because he can't take on everything that's being put on him. He struggles with his coworkers when they don't take responsibility for things. And as I listen to my friend describe this, I think, man, you are a victim of your strengths. You're a victim of your own success. Like you have things that, I, you know, from the outside, People want these skills. People want these abilities. And yet he's so frustrated by them. And he's not alone. I mean, we're surrounded by people who are victims of their own success. Victims of our own privilege. I mean, hey, I, I grew up in this area. I'm a, I'm a, you know, relatively young, white, American, male, educated, master's degree. I mean, I have every privilege afforded to like humanity is I have access to and I watch so many others who are in this situation struggle because they think that all of those things mean that they are able to meet their own needs they are able at some point to have it all work out if you know any other Enneagram type ones that's called the perfectionist those are people who can always notice what needs to be fixed and they always know exactly what to do to fix it. You know, I'm amazed that Enneagram type ones hang out at Littleton Christian Church and stay for long periods of time. Uh, thank you. I don't, go, I don't know why you do that. You like, you know, punishment. This is a, uh, this is a hamster wheel life. It leaves people discontent. And the teacher says, if you really give yourself over to it, you, you're worse than a stillborn child. But on the other side of this, he, he says that, you know, you can make that error on one side, but there's an error that you can make on the other side. And I'm calling this one ignoring outcomes, all right? Ignoring outcomes. The one is trying to control everything. And the more you try to control it, the less satisfied you are. And, and if that doesn't work out, many people then slingshot to the other side where they say, I, you know what? I, I'm done with the pain of this world. I'm done with the confusion and chaos. I'm done with the sad news. I am going to ignore all of it, and I'm going to figure out how to laugh my days away. All right? On the other side of those who chase the mirage of peace and success willing to pay any price are those committed to avoiding discomfort entirely. If chapter 6 describes the workaholic who is never satisfied, chapter 7, which I didn't read, it zeroes in on those who avoid pain and sadness at any cost. They pursue laughter, they avoid tears. And here's the sad reality. We live in a day and age in a society that allows millions of people, regardless of their, um, of their wealth, to distract themselves constantly from pain and suffering. This access 
to distraction, I think, is a large-scale example of being victims of our own success. I mean, think about it. Just imagine those people who are working, you know, who are kind of the drivers of which the industrial revolution, the technological revolution, the financial revolution, this, this ability for people to, to function, to have access to information all the time, any information we want. I mean, we, we have it all. Every one of you, nearly, no, not every one of you, some of you are blessed, many of you, have a screen in your pocket that can show you anything you want, anytime you want, all day. Your favorite apps or the apps you go to the most probably use a bottomless feed, an infinite feed that you scroll and scroll and scroll, waiting to find something to make you feel happy. We have more access to distraction than King Solomon could have ever dreamed. I mean, you know, lower middle class, we have more access than Solomon could have ever dreamed. We did it. We created safe societies built on remarkable infrastructure. And so we have a whole generation, many generations of people who are distracting ourselves, seeking laughter and avoiding pain. It occurred to me that People living in mansions and people living in the projects are spending their evenings watching the same reality TV. You know? They're doing the same thing with their time. The teacher might wonder if most of us fit in the category of of chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. He says, It is better for a person to receive a rebuke from those who are wise than to listen to the song of fools. For like the crackling of quick-burning thorns under a cooking pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This kind of folly is also useless. Just before this, he's saying, it is better to attend a funeral than a celebration. And yet many of us avoid that kind of pain. Uh, In 1985, there's a a teacher, social critic named Neil Postman who wrote, you know, he was uh, writing many books, trying to understand society, and and he wrote his most famous book in 1985. It's a devastating book. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Um, Maybe some of you have heard this book. Uh, When I was thinking about using this in the sermon, I read a bit of this section uh, to Stephen in the office, and uh, I didn't tell you I was going to say this, but as I read it, uh, Stephen just laid down on his face on the ground, like whatever the posture of just total defeat and sadness. And so let's see if you feel that way. You know, feel free to lay in the aisles if you you need to. So, you know, he opens this book with this chilling note, you know, in in the mid-80s. It's 1985, the year after 1984. That's good math, I think. And, um, and of course, many people had been waiting for 1984 because of the, the book 1984 by George Orwell. And, you know, that was this picture of the, gov- the government takeover, Big Brother, all of this stuff. Uh, and in his introduction to the book, he says, you know, it might be that instead of 1984 coming true, a different book that was written a little bit before 1984 by Aldous Huxley called Brave New World is what is actually coming true. I'm just going to read you a bit of what Neil Postman says. He says, what Orwell feared, that's 1984, 
were those, were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, the centrifugal bumble puppy, whatever that is. It's a, if you want to burn someone with an insult, call them, call them a centrifugal bumble puppy. <clears throat> as, as Huxley remarked in A Brave New World, I'm still quoting, uh, in A Brave New World Revisited, the civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distraction. Anyone want to lay down? Is he describing the world that we know? My goodness. Um, so, speaking of distraction, we you know once a week we do a family movie night, uh, and um, you know with with four kids with strong opinions. That's just a terrible process trying to choose a movie. So uh, most weeks I just, you know, exercise executive privilege and say, this is the movie. And so a couple weeks ago, uh, I said, we're going to watch Inside Out. Now, for those of you who aren't in the Pixar films stage of your life, Inside Out is an animated movie made by Pixar that takes place inside of an 11-year-old girl's head. And the characters of the movie are the core emotions that sort of create her personality and drive her to make the decisions that she makes. There's joy, there's sadness, there's anger, there's fear, and there's disgust. And these are the sort of five core emotions that make who she is. And, and, um, and you know, the, four, or the five main characters are, um, you know, are driving you know, they're putting memories in front of the girl's mind. They're helping her sort of interpret the world as it's happening to her. And when the little girl goes through a significant loss, she moves from her beloved childhood home. Joy tries to control the outcomes by keeping sadness from having any influence. She draws a, a little chalk circle and says, stay in this circle. Your job is to stay in this circle. You know, that's how she tries to control it. But the girl's difficult circumstances, you know, end up creating a situation where both joy and sadness are, they, they fall out of, you know, the command center of her brain and, and they get lost in her subconscious. And they're down there with, in these, uh, this maze of halls and uh, all these memories and, and Joy's trying to find a shortcut back to command center and she can't find it. It occurred to me, you know, I'm watching this movie. I'm like, this is amazing. My kids were like, this is so sad. Uh, uh, so uh, finally, Joy gives up, and she looks over, and she realizes that sadness has, you know, has memorized the route through this girl's deep memories. And she says, sadness, you have to lead me back. And it's a, it's a little preview of the point of the movie. In fact, the more sadness is restricted, 
this girl starts to lose her ability to feel joy or sadness. All she has is anger, fear, and disgust. She, she ends up considering running away from her family. When they limit sadness, when they don't let sadness influence and enhance her experience of her life, her world starts falling apart. We finished the movie and my kids said they never wanted to watch that again. And they're like, that movie was so sad. I was like, that's genius. <laughs> the teacher observes in Ecclesiastes, our lives will not be worth living if we live in denial of the pain and difficulty that come with it. Just, a, just uh, two days ago, I met a woman named Sarah. I heard her testimony at a gathering, and uh, she grew up in a tumultuous charismatic home, which among other things, uh, you know, she attached the meaning of, of tears that she observed in her father and in her own life as either the Holy Spirit moving or mental illness, you know, and nothing in between. And after significant pain and loss in her young adult life, she gave up on her faith. She decided that if God existed, he was indifferent to her life. There was nothing, you know, no connection she had to him. There's nothing that, you know, no way that he was involved. Sounds a little like Ecclesiastes, if you ask me. In some beautifully orchestrated ways, Jesus invaded her story. He caught her attention. By his mercy, she got connected to a community that loved her and didn't force her to be something that she wasn't. In her words, she said, I don't need a concert. I need confession and real-life modeling of contrite vulnerability. I need a place to weep, hope, and have people uh, 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 hold prayer with me. She needed a community of believers who weren't afraid of her sadness or pain, who accepted that as part of the goodness of her life. She, she said, at this point in her story, I can't see the ending yet, but my tears are faith, not mental illness. I think that's what we're being invited to here. So what is the third way? If controlling outcomes won't work, if ignoring outcomes won't work, what's the third way? The word the teacher gives it is the word contentment. Contentment. There's a, the key verse is, is chapter 6, verse 9. It says it so plainly. It says, It is better to be content with what the eyes can see than for one's heart always to crave more. This continual longing is futile, like chasing after the wind. He comes back to this idea again in chapter 7. He brings the, this idea to our understanding of God. He says in seven thirteen and 14, Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has bent? In times of prosperity, be joyful. But in times of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other so that no one can discover what the future holds. So what do we do with this? In, cha in chapter 8, here's his final deep recommendation. So I recommend the enjoyment of life. For there is nothing better on earth for a person to do except eat, drink, and enjoy life that's not just for the rich. He says, so joy will accompany him in his toil during the days of his life that God gives him on earth. You see, the teacher has surveyed 
the challenging, chaotic, mysterious realities of life that bring pain as well as joy and says it becomes worth living, not when everything goes right for us, but when we discover the most precious gift God has given to his people, this idea called contentment. And I've got to say, contentment is not being in just ignorant bliss. That is not contentment. That, that Just saying everything's great no matter what's happening. That's not the picture that we just heard about. Joy accompanies us in our toil. You know, this picture of someone continuing in their toil, every time you hear the word toil in Ecclesiastes, you should be thinking about Genesis, about the Garden of Eden. You should be thinking about the moment after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and God says, now your work with the ground will be toilsome. This is the life east of Eden that we've been given. And yet, God promises to remain with us in it. Our toil is our our continuing to struggle to faithfully do what God made us to do, to represent him and to steward his creation. That's what he's offered to us. Toil is not merely how you put food on the table. It's your good work to bring justice, to reduce poverty, to befriend the lonely, to raise your children, to care for the aged. Toil might be the hard work of, of a challenging marriage, or it might be the daily fight through a chronic disease. But this idea of contentment suggests that God's people have the ability to experience joy in the midst of toil. So what is contentment? The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs uh, says this, uh, uh, on the quote I wrote, Samuel Burroughs, I don't know. Samuel's a Puritan name, Jeremiah's a Puritan name, I don't know. Um, but it's Jeremiah Burroughs. He wrote this wonderful definition of Christian contentment. He says, it is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. God's wise and fatherly disposal. Ecclesiastes is inviting us into a type of life where the pain, the sadness, the tears, the, all, all of that, and also the gifts, the, the sun on our face, or the taste of a, you know, a ribeye steak, or whatever your thing is. You know, these, these moments we receive as gifts, we receive as little bits of God's grace and goodness being poured out to us in the moment. You, in fact, have an opportunity for contentment that the teacher only saw in shadows. He imagined a life in which joy accompanied toil, but you know that life in living color, you've seen it. What the teacher hoped for but perhaps did not experience, I mean, he he drops into hopelessness again and again, was demonstrated fully and beautifully by Jesus. The deepest contentment is made possible by and through Jesus alone. I want to just give you a few quick ways how Jesus does this, how he offers us contentment. First of all is his example. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Jesus said about himself. He was threatened and challenged, and yet he was never offended. He was never defensive. He was never anxious. When he's sad, it's an expression of compassion. He sees this broken world and his broken people, and he longs 
for their redemption. When he's angry, and it's an expression of justice. When he is accused, he's confidently silent. That's what contentment looks like. Here's what it looks like to freely submit to and delight in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's his example. Also, he gives us the gift of contentment. He says, pursue his kingdom in righteousness and the Father will meet your needs. Or or in Luke 12, he says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide yourselves purses that do not wear out, a treasure in heaven that never decreases, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. This is contentment through Christ. He gives us contentment through his suffering. Jesus is a man of sorrows. He takes on our sin. He weeps at Lazarus' grave. This isn't the way the world is supposed to be. He looks upon Jerusalem and cries over it. I've longed to gather you, Jerusalem, as a mother hen gathers her chicks. He confronts the disciples' lack of faith. He he fights the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. This is all a demonstration of contentment engaging with a broken world. And he gives it to us. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. It's not that he doesn't, doesn't ask for things to be different. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. And finally, he gives us contentment through the gift of his resurrection. Friends, we we celebrated Easter not too long ago, and we noticed the first words out of Jesus' mouth at the end of Matthew. The first thing we hear him say is, in English, greetings. In Greek, kara, rejoice. His first thing that he says to the ladies is, woo! That's That's how he announces that he's alive again. When he enters the upper room with his disciples, he says, my peace I have My peace I give you. This is the gift of the resurrection. It renders the redeemed the opposite of fruitless laborers. We savor the perfect fruit of his work. We are not worse off than a stillborn child because we get to enjoy what he has worked for. In fact, we do that every week at the table. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his disciples. And when he had taken the bread and given thanks for it, he said, take this and eat all of you. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And friends, we enjoy the fruit of his labor. If you are struggling with contentment, here is the moment for you to pause and say, thank you. And you will be better off than a stillborn child. Right here. Your life will be filled with meaning through him. Let's pray together. Father, you took the fruit of the ground. You took the fruit of the vine. And you transformed it into the gift of yourself to us. And so, Lord, in this moment, 
we come to this table rejoicing that though we are often discontent, Lord, though I constantly try to control outcomes, and then I, and then I constantly switch over and try to ignore the world entirely, Lord, that you have given me and my brothers and sisters a better way. Lord, have mercy on us for trying to control, for ignoring. Show us contentment that in this moment, in the present, we might bear the kingdom of God and show the world what you're like. In Jesus' name, amen. So my brothers and sisters,